And if you have a, a Bible with you, you can turn it to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3. If not, listen as I read and have faith that I'm actually reading from the Bible. You guys have heard me say the story about the young preacher. He's just learning to preach, and he's pretty distraught about the fact that people, several people are falling asleep when he, when he preaches. So he says to his older mentor, you know, they're falling asleep, and, and the older guy says, hey, don't let that bother you. It means they trust you. So he's got it covered. I'm sure he's telling the truth. I can take a nap at this point. But don't trust me that much, all right? So 1 Timothy 3 in just a bit. Welcome, everyone. I'll tell you why we're turning to 1 Timothy 3 in a moment, but let me just uh, remind you of a few things that are coming up. Uh, one is that next week is, is Mother's Day, and we don't do anything in particular on Mother's Day other than the theme of the message is uh, centered on encouragement, hopefully, to, to mothers and ladies in general. So ladies, I encourage you to be here. Men, I encourage you to have your wives here. We hope to have a word of encouragement from Scripture for our ladies and those of you that are privileged to have your mother with you, this side of uh, heaven, uh, to honor her and honor our ladies on, on that day. So next week is, is um, Mother's Day. And then on the end of this month, the, the 26th, is Memorial Day. And every Memorial Day, we have a picnic, and that's listed in your program. So I encourage you to take a look at that. And if you don't have other plans, if you can be with us, we always have a good time. Uh, we've had it for the last few years and will again this year at uh, Lake Erie Metro Park. It's a nice spot for us. We have a pavilion that is reserved for that. We'll start eating at noon uh, all of that information is in your, your program. Uh, the downside to using the Metro Park is you have to pay for each vehicle to go in, So and they've raised that. It's now $7. used to be 5 but it's a 7 But uh, if you can spring for the uh, 5 bucks, that would be or $7, then uh, you'll have a good time uh, for that. And then we have some longer-range things that coming up that are in your program. We've got Family Camp, and actually that's not so long-range. Family Camp is uh, just in June. It's uh, June the 15th. Uh, Father's Day, that afternoon, that evening, uh, those of us who are going will be at the uh, Double J Ranch out on the west side of the state. So if you have not registered for that as yet, uh, you need to do so by next Sunday. So we're trying to nudge everybody to make a decision by next Sunday. And if you can't come for the entire week, you can rent a a, a cabin or you can, uh, if you're a tent person uh, or if you have a camper, you can bring that. They've got spots for that. But we have uh, full efficiency units in the area that, that we rent. So you have your own bathroom if, that, if, you're, if you're afraid of that. <laughs> you have your own uh, little kitchenette and all of that stuff. But you have to register one way or another and do that by next week. And the number for that, 800-JJ, is in your, in your program too. And then longer-range stuff, ladies, in October is the True Woman Conference in uh, Indian, Indianapolis. And then very long-range, April of next year, we've got a Holy Land uh, tour that we're going to go on. We're going to go to Israel, and anybody who's interested in doing that, um, it's going to cost about $3,350, $3,350 in order for that to happen, but that's all-inclusive. That's the airfare. That's, uh, that's uh, food and lodging and all of that, and it'll be a life-changing experience, I'm sure. I have never had opportunity to go, so Lord willing, I'm looking forward to doing that. But these things are listed in your program. I just encourage you to keep an eye on that and uh, put them on your calendar as you're able to participate. These last few weeks in this hour, I have uh, chosen to deal with issues related to, for lack of a better term, uh, church philosophy. 
And uh, if any of you have already, just by me saying church philosophy, have tuned out, <laughs> then uh, if, if, you, if you walk out now, it won't hurt my feelings. My self-esteem is intact fairly well. Uh, but church philosophy, now, now why? Uh, well, philosophy has to do with, with wisdom, uh, or should have to do with wisdom. And the Bible directs us as uh, Christ followers, and in particular as, as his leaders, but all of Christ's followers, to exercise wisdom in the way that we go about his work. And so church philosophy, or wisdom applied to the work of the Lord, is something that all of us are called to think about. And it's important for me as, uh, as a leader, and for us as leaders, to make sure it's clear to our congregation the philosophy, the at least hopeful wisdom that we've tried to apply to the way we do things and, and why we do them that way. And at this particular juncture in the life of our church, I thought it was important to take some time to do that because we have now moved into this place. And we've, we've been here for not quite 12 months because we had two months off-site, many of you know, while this addition was being added on. Now we've been able to expand this room and accommodate more people. And then in the middle of July, we're looking to have a grand opening here and invite uh, the community to, to see what we're about and by God's grace, hopefully reach a number of people in our community with the gospel to see them come to Christ and then for us to be his tools in helping them grow in Christ. So we want all of that. I'm sure if you're a member of our church, you're all on board with, with that. But it is a good time for us to then just step back a bit and remind ourselves why we do stuff the way we do. And, and with that, uh, it, it also involves why we don't do stuff <laughs> the way other people might do. Now, my sessions prior to this, and this one included, are not going to be bashing sessions on, on anyone. The people that I, I bash are people that are out-and-out out heretics. And uh, so I'll mention names every now and then, but I don't do so gratuitously or just anybody who does things differently than we do. There are a lot of ways in church philosophy to skin the cat, but there are some better and, and best ways, and then there are some uh, not-so-good ways and not-so-wise ways to go about the Lord's work. So it's important for us to understand that for your benefit so that we're all on the same page. But also, from time to time, many of you will get, uh, have opportunity to explain our church and why we do things the way we do. Or someone might ask you, you know, what's wrong with, do you see something wrong with, you know, how this particular church is doing it? You want to be able to have a ready answer for that. So for all of those reasons, I want to take a few weeks for us to chat about church philosophy. Last week, uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the first five verses there where Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, this is my paraphrase, but, and, and, and by the way, all these sessions are recorded. So if you were not with us last week uh, for our worship service or for this hour, any, any week, those are all recorded and at our website. But uh, paraphrasing what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he's saying, I know what you all wanted me to do when I came to you with my ministry and with my preaching. You wanted me to come with eloquent words of Greek rhetoric. And I explained last week that Greek rhetoric was a form of entertainment, actually, for people in that day. So they loved to gather to themselves people who could speak in eloquent ways and could spellbind an, an audience. And Paul knew that. And, in fact, I'm convinced that Paul could have done that if he so chose. That Paul was a, a brilliant man and that he could have wowed the crowd if he wanted to do that. 
But he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, I didn't come to you with the very thing you wanted, so that the results of my ministry might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So that in turn, God will be the one who receives the glory rather than Paul or anybody else. Well, that gives us a guiding principle then, I think, for the way we go about what we do. You see, this is really important, dear friends. There was nothing sinful about Greek rhetoric and people going to be entertained by Greek rhetoricians. Nothing sinful about that. So the approach to church philosophy that says it's a good thing to do as long as the Bible doesn't prohibit it as sinful won't fly. Because that wasn't sinful. And yet Paul chose not to do it, not because it was inherently sinful, but because it was not the best vehicle in order for the ultimate purpose of our ministry to be achieved, namely for God to receive the praise and the glory for what happens. So that means then for us, we have to think about how we go about our business. Leaders, musicians, I said last week, and and, and preachers, and all of us have to think about not just what we do, but even how we do it. Because to the extent that attention is drawn to us, then we're drawing attention away from Christ. You don't want to become then. I don't want to become. I don't have much... (laughs) I don't have much danger of this, but I don't want to become the cool guy. (laughs) Don't worry, Pastor, you're doing just fine. (laughs) Not even approaching it, not even close, okay? But you don't want want to become the the draw. As a preacher, as a a music program, you don't want that to be the draw. You want to be the, the Word of God, and you want Jesus to be the draw. And so that means that you have to think about what you do and and how you do it. And there needs to be, as I said last week, a modesty in the way we go about what we do. Now, I want to deal with some related issues then for church wisdom, church philosophy that impinge upon how we go about what we do. And the first thing that we have to do if we're going to talk about church philosophy is we need to make sure we understand what we mean by church. I mean, many people talk church But don't just go back and do uh, the basic thing of saying, what do I mean when I say church? So I'm just asking you to think about that. As we spend some time now in this session thinking about church philosophy, if I ask you to define what do you mean by church, what would you say to that? And of course you want your answer to be the Bible's answer to that. I mean, we get this whole idea of church from Scripture because church is God's idea. So when people say things like you hear in our culture, you know, I, I don't need church to have a relationship with God. Anybody heard that? Right? So I don't need church to have a relationship with God. Uh, what does God say about that? Seems like God spilled just a bunch of ink in the Bible about the church and how the church is supposed to behave and what the church is supposed to do. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, five Christ Love the church and gave himself up for her. For anybody to say, I don't need the church, you're saying you don't need something that Jesus died for. So this is important stuff according to God, and it needs to be defined by God. So what do we mean when we say church? So in just a moment, we'll look at 1 Timothy 3, but, but just by way of definition, here's what 
the word translated church in the New Testament means. It's a, a Greek word, ekklesia. Some of you know that, ekklesia. Um, my, I won't give you my password, but my user ID on just about everything that I have a user ID is, is that. It's ecclesia. And the reason is, is because, and then I hate the people that say, well, you've got to have a number in there too. So, all right, so ecclesia, and that's ecclesia one. And then there's some other, somebody else who has that, so now I'm ecclesia two, okay? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, but just, it, it just keeps in front of me how important the church is. And the Greek word ecclesia is a compound of two uh, of, of, of a, a prefix and a, and a word, ek, which means uh, out, and then kaleo, which means call. And ekklesia, ekkaleo means this, to call out. And the ekklesia then, the church, is the assembly, the group of those who have been called out. Called out of what? called out of the world, called out of sin, and unto Christ and righteousness. So at the very beginning, when you begin to talk church and church wisdom, church philosophy, here's what you're talking about. You're talking about people who are called out. Well, that is going to start to shape the way you go about stuff. Because it means now, and we hate this kind of language, but it is Bible language. There's, there's us and there's them. Now, I, don't, I trust you know I don't mean that in any sort of a hostile or superior sort of mindset. But there are, in God's, in God's, uh, from God's perspective, there are two groups of people. Those who are in and those who are out. Those who are believers and those who are not. Those who are in darkness and those who walk according to the light. The Bible has these antitheses throughout, this and that. Light and dark, truth and error. So as we do church then, which is this collection of called out ones who are this rather than that, that's going to affect the way we go about our presentation of ourselves. It's also going to create some issues for us that we've got to deal with. Well, if the church is a collection of people that are in, how do we relate to the people that are out? How can we do that? And that's, a, that's where wisdom must be applied. But you start with the definition. What is the church? What does the Bible say about the church? And the church is that called out ones. All right. Now, with that, the Bible uses the word ecclesia 114 times. 114. And of those 114, it is used a couple of different ways. Actually, three different ways. A handful of times, the word ecclesia is just used of just a collection of people that were called together for some purpose. So it's used in a secular sense, not used in the, te- in the, in the spiritual sense, the New Testament church sense. You have that a handful of times. One example of that is in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, there is recorded there the story of a mob, a riot, (laughs) that took place in the city of Ephesus because Paul had come and preached Christ at Ephesus. People were converted to Christ and therefore were no longer 
going to be uh, worshiping at the Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in the city of Ephesus. Well, here's the problem with that if you lived in Ephesus. Diana worship is big business. And many people made their living by making stuff related to the worship of Diana. So in Acts 19, you've got a riot that takes place. And this riot is these people who are in an upheaval, particularly those whose jobs are at stake now, who are saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is what it says in Acts 19. But that group is called, in different translations, a mob or a riot. And the word there is ecclesia. It's a group, an assembly of people, but still the word called out applies. Because they were literally called out of their homes to come and riot on behalf of uh, the worship of Diana. So it's used sometimes just in this generic way of a called out group for whatever purpose. But of those 114 times, 109 of those are used of the New Testament church. Now, of those 109, there are two ways that church is used. One is of what we sometimes call the universal church. The universal church. Have you ever heard that uh, term? Who do you need, Wayne? Is, hey. <laughs> I thought you were looking for me, sorry. So 109 references to the New Testament church, and there are two ways that ecclesia is applied to the New Testament church. The first one is this, the universal church. Now, do you know what I mean when I say that, universal church? That is, the church that is not in a particular location, uh, but rather is comprised of all of those called out of sin, called out of the world, and to Christ. It's the entire body, capital B, of those who are saved those who belong to Christ. And the, the, the word church is sometimes used of all Christians everywhere, uh, in all places, at, all, at, at, at the same time. So sometimes it's used that way, but only a, uh, only a handful of times. You've got 109, in fact, a handful, 10. Of the remaining 99 uses of the word ecclesia, it is about the lo- what we call the local church. So you have the universal church, that's everybody who's saved, no matter their race, ethnicity, their country of origin, no matter their denomination. If someone has truly been born again, if they, then they are a child of God and they are part of the body of Christ. They are part of the church. They've been called out of the world and to Christ. But then you have 99 uses in the New Testament of the word church that apply to a group, a collection, an assembly of those called out people in a particular locale, a particular place. So you will then hear talk of the local church. You've got the universal church, and that's not bound to place, but then you've got the local church, and that obviously is in a locale. Now, we're going to look at that in a moment in 1 Timothy 3. But just, uh, just uh, I want to make sure this is clear. Sometimes we use local in a way that means close, in proximity. So we'll say uh, your local grocery store, and we mean the grocery store close to you. I think it's good to be a part of, be a member of a church that you are within relative uh, short driving distance. 
so that you can fully participate in the life of the church. But when we say local church, we don't mean necessarily close to your house. It means it's the church that assembles and gathers in a particular locale. That's what we mean by local, as opposed to universal, which is not in a particular location, okay? So with that, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14 says this. 1 Timothy 3.14 Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions. Now let me stop there. We're going to continue in a moment. We're going to see Ecclesia and all of that. Although I hope to come to you. So who am I and who are you? So I is Paul who wrote this. Although I, Paul, hope to come to you, Timothy. Thus the name of the book, 1 Timothy. This is Paul's letter to his young protege, Timothy, explaining to him how ministry ought to go. So, verse 14, Although I, Paul, hope to come to you, Timothy, soon, I am writing you these instructions so that... Now, again, let me stop for a minute. I'm writing you these instructions. What instructions? And he then goes on in verse 15 to say the purpose of these instructions is so that people will know how to conduct themselves or how to behave themselves in God's household, the ecclesia, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the church. So what are these instructions? I'm writing you these. What? These. So I want to answer that question. What are the instructions that he's talking about, that he's written? And then I want to talk about the purpose for which he wrote them, that people ought to know, will know how to conduct themselves in the church. But I want to ask you this question. If you look at verse 15, and it says, I want people to know how to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the church. Remember I said that in Scripture, ecclesia is used two ways, local church, universal church. So which way is church being used there in verse 15? that the church is God's household and the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, immediately you might say, well, that sounds like the universal church, God's family, pillar and foundation of the truth. Yikes, you're going to give us that responsibility here in Trenton? So you might think universal, but you need to then look at the context because context always determines meaning. So how is ecclesia being used here, local or universal? And these two verses attach to these instructions. Verse 14, I am writing you these instructions so that. So what instructions? If you were to look back at chapter 2, and go back to chapter 2 and verse 1. In chapter 2 and verse 1, there's a, a heading in most Bibles. There's a heading in my Bible that says instructions on worship. Do you guys in your Bible, do you have something like that? Rules for worship or order for worship or something like that. And then if you look at these instructions then, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of, of the truth. So this is about prayers that are to be offered and the fact that they are to be prayer, 
prayers and requests made for all sorts of people in different uh, circumstances. And then as you go on in chapter 2, in verse 9, it begins to talk about women and, and dress. And notice what it says. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. By the way, gals, if you have your hair braided right now, um, it's, <laughs> this all this all, this all emphasized a particular type of ostentation at that time. So you're, you're good, okay? Um, but verse 10, but rather with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And then talks about uh, submission to authority in verses 11 through, through 15. And then from there about prayers and the role of women in the, in the church. Then you come to chapter 3. Here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that is, a pastor, if anyone set, sets his heart on being a, a pastor, he desires a noble task, now the pastor or overseer must be, and then you've got all these qualifications, all the way through verse 7 of what a pastor is to be. Then you get down to verse 8, deacons likewise, and then these are qualifications to be deacons. Then in verse 11, these are the qualifications for deacons' wives. Then you come back to, in verse 12, back to deacons briefly. And then you come to where we started, verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions. Now, what were all those instructions about? Were they about the universal church or the the local church? And And the answer is clearly the local church. It's only a local church that has pastors and deacons. There aren't any pastors and deacons of the universal church. So when you get to verse 15, I'm writing you these instructions about how people ought to conduct themselves. This is how life ought to go in God's family, God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. How ought it to go? This is the way prayers ought to go. And this is the way the men and women are to relate to each other in the church. And these are the qualifications for leaders in the church. And I'm writing you these instructions so that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves. Because I may be delayed, he says in verse 15. I may not be able to come and help you set things in order, so I'm writing this for you. And these are instructions then that apply to God's household, the ecclesia, the church of the living God, that in this case meets in the city of Ephesus. That's where Timothy was pastoring. Well, that's heady stuff, isn't it? That the church is God's household and the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church of the the living God. Now, if if everything I've said is true, and, and it is, then would you all agree that life in the Father's house, life in the assembly, is serious stuff indeed, isn't it? And the idea that we can then make church whatever we want it to be is something that we have got to remove from our philosophy of church. If we're going to be wise about the church, we don't then just get to make it up. It's His household. It's the church of the living God. He has given instructions about it. He cares deeply about it. It's his idea. 
So we are not then. And I'm preaching. You know, no, I'm not preaching. I'm telling you the truth. As if there's a distinction between us. But, and I hope you, I'll say we, hoping you agree with me. But we're not looking for the next guy to come along with the next cool idea. And dear friends, that is what so many of our churches are doing. What is the next silver bullet that's going to help our church move forward? And, and what God wants from us is for us to look at the instructions he has written about life in the Father's house. And then follow them. And follow them joyfully and follow them with everything that we have. And then let him bless that as he so chooses. But I'm letting you know that that's the kind of wisdom that we want to roll with here, that we want to have here. That it's God's church and he's given instructions and to the best of our ability, we want to follow those instructions. All right. So I'm simply making the point that the church is, one, a called-out group, called out of the world and to God, that God cares deeply about the church. He calls it his household. It belongs to him. It is the pillar, the support, and foundation of the truth. The church is not the truth. God is truth. His word is truth. But we're the pillar and support of that. So it's... It is eternally important stuff that we do here. And how we do it then matters to God. And so we must have a philosophy of church, church philosophy, wisdom applied to how we go about what we're doing. All right. So with that, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because having established that, church is called out, called out of the world. Not everybody's in the church. There are people who are in and there are people who are out. The people who are in have to take seriously this entity that they are a part of, this thing called the local assembly of God's people and how they go about what they do. But that now is going to raise some questions that we've got to answer. How do I relate? How do we relate to the people who are not in? If you're called out, therefore you're in this group and other people are not. In fact, not only are other people not, most people are not. Then how do we, how do we relate together? And those are wisdom questions and important questions. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth. Now, this is a local assembly, right? It's in a particular locale in Corinth. But then here is an apposition, it's called. This is, a, this is okay, the church of God in Corinth, which is also, here's another way to describe the church of God in Corinth, verse 2. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how the local church, that is this assembly, these called out ones, is described. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So what's sanctified mean? It means set apart. 
So church is called out, and the people who have been called out, by virtue of having been called out, are set apart from those who are not, among other things. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy. So called out of the world unto God, into the church, part of his called out ones now, but to progressively be made holy, to be further and holy and sanctified, uh, have the hagios, they have the same root word, to be made holy, to become holy, to be set apart. So this is what God has called the church to, to look like. Set apart, and yet God goes and says, but while you're set apart, go and reach people who aren't in yet. How are you going to about that? And that's where now we have to talk shop and we have to talk wisdom. And I'd like to do that in our remaining time and for as many weeks as it takes for everyone to put their all on the altar and for us to, to all agree together. So we're separate, we're called out of the world, and yet at the same time God has given us a mission to reach our world. Wow. So let me ask you, I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you to think, and let's think wisely and then, and, and hopefully then biblically, about how we go about that. The hour we had just before this one, we call a time of worship. And normally we'll have a call to worship at the beginning. And everything we do in that service assumes that the people who are in that service, who are participants in that service, are people who have been called out of the world. Everything we do. Now, everybody who's a participant, the truth is, I thank God that every week there are people in attendance in our worship services who have yet to be called out, and we hope to be God's instruments of seeing that happen. But the entire service is designed for those who will be participating in it and those who will be participating in it are only those who are called out of the world into Christ. You say, really? I mean, (laughs) I didn't know we had a sign when people come in, one that says sheep this way, goats that way. (laughs) And and of course we don't. So how do you know the sheep from the goats? Well, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But... The design of the service is for those who are able to participate and presumably want to participate, and those can only be those who are called out of the world and are part of the ecclesia of the church. Now, why do I say that? Here's why. Can unbelievers worship? And the answer to that is no. You can only come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the means by which you become part of the called out ones, then you can't be, you're not part of the church, and you're not actually able to worship. You can watch, you can observe, but you can't do, you can't worship. 
So that means that the elements that comprise a time of assembled worship for the called out ones ought to be elements that are designed for those who can participate in it. You design a worship service for Christians. You design a worship service for believers. You're happy to have anybody else come. We love you. We're delighted you're here. But you're observing what Christians do and what Christians love and how Christians behave and what it looks like for Christians to be called out and to be God's holy, sanctified people. That's why I say stuff that just wouldn't resonate with an unbeliever. You get in, you have this long prayer that you write out, and you say, how holy is that to write it out? Shouldn't it just come to you? I I think it's important enough that I think about it as as I approach God. And I write it out. And at the end of it, I say, and all of what? God's people said amen. This is a called out group of people. When we gather and assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's a matter then of wisdom that, friends, will then affect the way we structure what we do. So we've got a time every week for God's people to gather and God's people to worship. And yet at the same time, we've got this task of reaching those who are outside that we want desperately to be inside. And how do we do that? Well, let me give you a few ways we don't do that, and that'll be enough for today. Let me give you a few ways we don't do that. We cannot do that by blurring the distinction between what it means to be in and what it means to be out. In other words, we cannot do anything to give people who are outside of Christ and thus outside of his called-out people we cannot do anything that gives them the false impression that they're in. And here's my fear. That many of our churches and what we are doing is gathering a crowd rather than a congregation. And do you understand those are not the same thing? And if you ask, and I have done this, I've asked people, so... You know, where, where do you, and I try to use the language, where do you serve? Because, you know, we use language, where do you go, right? Where do you go to church? But really, we are the church. So where do you, as someone who's part of the church, where do you serve? In what locale? In what assembly do you do that? But then you run across people who go to these, like, stadium-like places. Where... Just droves of people come in where the design of the worship is not exclusively for Christians, but it's for all y'all. And, and people will go literally for years, years, without ever being confronted with the need for you to be a member of God's church a member of his body. And so there's not this challenge for you to understand, am I in or am I out? Now think about that. Think about if you have people who, are, who have never declared themselves to belong to Christ and belong to Christ's church. 
and for years are doing that. Do you see how we then have a crowd, and within that crowd, we don't know who the congregation is? And it's not important enough to us to make sure that we help people determine, are you in or are you out? How does communion go in a place like that? Who can participate in communion? Only those who belong to Jesus, right? And even those who belong to Jesus must not, we are warned in 1 Corinthians 11, partake unworthily with known and unconfessed sin. And the idea that I am going to stand and preside over this ceremony that Jesus instituted the night before he died at the Last Supper and I am just going to make it unclear, fail to make it clear as to who is in and who is out. I have a fairly long speech I go through every time we do the Lord's table. And I say, who should participate? And this is who should participate, those who know Christ as Savior. Those who are following him in obedience as best they can without known, unconfessed sin in their lives. And uh, so I I try to make that clear because I've got a responsibility to make clear the church is God's called out people and this this is the observance of the body and blood of Christ and we, the church, are his body. We are the representatives of that. But you see how if you fail to think about these things, you will say, look, we've got a mission. Christ says reach as many as you can. If, if what we do gets people to come, then we're accomplishing our mission. And I'll leave you with this. See, friends, our mission is not just to get people to come. In fact, I'm going to say something that may shock you, but take a number. You know, our mission ultimately is not to see people saved. That's not our ultimate mission. Our mission ultimately is to see God glorified. And seeing people saved is one of the ways that happens. An important way it happens, but it's one of the ways it happens. And if that's your controlling motif, if that's your controlling goal and and purpose, the glory, the character of God, then it will shape the way you do what you do. So we, us, God's church, we've got to be clear on what the church is. We've got to be clear on how it is that we can relate to the world, the people that are out, what we want to have in. But we've got to do it in a way that brings glory to God, that reflects his character. Now how? How can we do that? I'm really good at telling you all the ways we can't do it, that we won't do it. I have absolutely no solutions as to how we... No, I'm kidding. So we'll talk some more next week about how the Bible describes then this called-out group and the implications that has then for us as a called-out assembly. But then practical ways that we are to make connections and contacts with those who are outside. It most definitely can be done. Thanks be to God, He's allowed us to do it here. It most definitely can be done. And by God's grace, it's going to continue to be done. But also by His grace, it's going to be done in a way that honors and brings glory to Him. And that's what church wisdom, church philosophy is to be about, okay? All right, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to 
gather and think about these most important issues, issues that relate to the the structure of your church and the carrying out of the mission that you've assigned to us. Oh, Lord, help us to not be flippant in the way we think about the church. Help us to never fall prey to the church as something optional, that we don't need the church to cultivate our relationship with you. The church is yours. It's your idea. You love it. You gave it. And we are to serve as privileged people uh, within it and to carry out its ministry th- mission through it. And so, Lord, thank you for that, and thank you for letting us to take this time to think and to think uh, in some, some hard ways and perhaps some different ways and perhaps for some of us for the first time in ways about what your word tells us about what the church is and why it is here and who comprises it. And as we do this, Lord, we, we need your wisdom. We need your wisdom to make application then of these principles from, from your word. As we face obstacles, as we face trends, as we face questions that were perhaps not questions 2,000 years ago, But your word is sufficient for us. It addresses everything we need for life and godliness. You have given it to us so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so your word has by precept or principle what we need in order to face the challenges that you bring us. So thank you, Lord, for that instruction. Thank you for your church. And thank you most of all for letting us be a part of it. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety and help us to represent you in a way that is befitting you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.